Chapter Two of All the World by Charles Monroe Sheldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adele de Pignoles. Chapter Two. Dick Ward and Requa Wendell had been engaged when the ambulance company two forty one went away, and all during the trying days of their separation they had kept up their correspondence. And Dick was able to look straight ahead and thank the good God that he had been faithful to a pure love which the homecoming had intensified for each of them. Requa was proud of her hero, and Dick had reason to be proud of her absolute affection, for Requa was an only daughter, and her father was jealous even of Dick. "'You couldn't have him, or rather he couldn't have you, only on condition that he doesn't take you away,' Rufus Randall had said to her one evening after Dick had gone. "'No danger,' Requa had said, as she kissed her father good night. "'What is Dick going to do?' he had asked. "'I don't know. He says he hasn't any plans. Only to get married.' "'Requa said, looking down. "'But he can't get married without some kind of business,' "'Requa's father had said. "'And Requa's father was the most practical businessman in Bradford. "'I know,' Requa had said, somewhat faintly, "'for she was afraid of her father when he spoke with his business voice. "'So when Dick came in this morning, "'Requa asked, after they had exchanged lovers' pledges, "'Dick, dear, what are you going to do now you are through going to war?' "'I'm going to marry you and settle down,' answered Dick promptly. "'Yes, I know,' said Requa, blushing. "'But what are you going to do in the way of a business or profession?' Requa had a little of her father's practical make-up. "'I wish someone would tell me,' said Dick gravely. "'I'm all at sea about it. I don't want to start in with college, and I don't care for a lot of things the other fellows are going into. And here's this.' He held up his right arm, while Requa looked at it, tears in her eyes. Suddenly Dick laughed. "'Do you know what Dad asked me this morning? "'Asked me if I ever thought of being a foreign missionary.' "'But to his surprise, Requa did not laugh. "'You would make a good one.' "'I would.' "'Yes. You like people of all sorts. "'You're not afraid of any circumstances. "'You learn language easily. "'You adapt yourself to any sort of climate. "'You have perfect health. "'You are very persuasive.' "'Go on,' said Dick, as Requa paused. "'I never knew all my good qualities until you discovered them.' "'There's a lot more I don't think of right now, but you have nearly all the qualifications.' "'Would you go with me, Requa, to India, or Turkey, or Africa?' Dick asked carelessly. "'You know I would go anywhere, but Father would never consent.' "'That settles it, then. Come, dear, help me to figure out my future. What do you think I ought to take up? Dentistry, or a candy shop? The candy business strikes me. After all the shortage of sugar the folks at home have been bearing, they're just crazy for sweets. We can make our fortune in the candy business.' The lovers talked the matter over seriously and half-seriously, but when they said good-bye that forenoon, Dick went home as much at sea as ever concerning his future. When Sunday morning came, every able-bodied person in Bradford prepared to go to church. There were several reasons for this. One was the fact that during the war the five different churches in Bradford had merged into one community organization. Another reason for the general habit of church-going was Dr. Ward's preaching. It was simple, direct, persuasive, comforting, educational, and inspiring. The congregations of the five churches met in the largest building for worship and used the other buildings for various programs of social and community work. Two of the ministers had gradually found their places as community workers, and the other two, who were young men, had taken up special missionary service. Dr. Ward, by virtue of his long residence in Bradford, his influence in the community, and his rare gift as a preacher, by common consent, had continued as the fittest man of all to bring the Sunday message the people were eager and hungry to hear. 
When Dr. Roard rose to preach that morning, he must have felt the intense interest of the congregation had in his subject. In front of him sat scores of the boys who had been to the war, deprived of all church privileges, torn out of their three great common heritages, church, home, and school. Now on the return, finding themselves hungry for the religious services some of them had not appreciated when they had them, eager to enjoy a genuine, real, heart-satisfying church service again. And Dr. Ward's subject gripped them. He had found at last, he said, the one great, all-compelling work needed for the world's new welfare, this new world which the great war had created, much of which those who had been fighting for it could not yet understand, because it was so strange and different from the world they knew when they marched away in freedom's name. But they would have time now to discover what this new world and what it needed. And among all its tremendous needs and its new demands for new and in many cases untried ways, there was nothing to compare with the Master's old command, Go ye into all the worlds, and make disciples of the nations. If the disciples in every age had only obeyed that command, there would have been no war. If only they had been willing to pay out for this missionary campaign one hundredth part of the money the war had cost, or a tithe as much as they had given to the Red Cross to heal war's wounds, the world by this time had been redeemed. But they must not dwell on that. The one great imperative call today was for volunteers to go into all the world and disciple all the nations, so that another great catastrophe caused by human greed and ambition and hate might never again fall upon the earth. How well he made his plea, Dr. Ward could not possibly know. All he did know was that a brooding silence was over all the room, that many a head was bowed, that lips were moving in prayer, that tears were on many faces that when the service closed after the benediction even, the people did not stir to rise until he himself had come down out of the pulpit, an event never before that had been known. Sunday was always a very busy day for Dr. Ward, as he had a preaching appointment in the afternoon at the hospital, and in the evening he was directing the Union Council meeting, composed mostly of the young people of Bradford. He was in this service until nine o'clock, and on going home, went, according to his regular habit, into his little study, to jot down in his service book the important items of the day. He was still at work on this, which was his last act, before he relaxed from the Sunday duties, when Dick appeared in the doorway. His father noted his hesitation, closed his service book, and said, "'Come in, Dick. I'm all through.' Dick came in and sat down, a look on his face that his father had never seen. Both father and son had the same habit of coming directly to the subject." Dick said, without any preliminaries, "'Dad, your sermon this morning decided me. I've made up my mind to accept that commission to go into all the world. I don't feel fit, but I'm ready to be made so, and I want you to pray for me now, will you, Dad?' Dr. Ward did not know what to say. For almost the first time in his life he confronted a situation so entirely unexpected that he was not prepared for it. Dick sat there, totally ignorant of what was in his father's mind. It was the first time in his life that he had ever asked his dad to pray for him, and the experience he was having must have been something tremendous to force from him such a request. He waited in the moment of hesitation that brooded over his father, looking at him so earnestly and wistfully that Dr. Ward, in the tone and tumult of his feeling, was near to crying out with a number of questions. But swiftly it swept over his heart that here was his lad, the boy nearest his heart, the one he had followed through all his war experience with even more interest than that of Albert, his older son, and he had come in and asked for a prayer. His heart smote him as he recalled the fact that he knew very little of the religious life of this boy of his. There had been only brief glimpses now and then in his letters, as they had come at very irregular intervals, nothing very definite, and here he was now asking his own father to pray for him, 
and to pray that he might go on a service that might take him away somewhere on the other side of the world. It was the last thing that he had ever thought of in connection with Dick, but here he was asking for it, and as a direct result of his own father's appeal to the young life in his own parish. But the next moment he had risen, crossed over the little space between himself and Dick, kneeled by him, and begun to pray, with a tenderness and self-forgetfulness that surprised himself. When he had finished and slowly risen to go back to his accustomed seat at his desk, there were tears on Dick's face. He put up his hand to brush them away. "'Thank you, Dad. I needed it. You see, this has come to me suddenly. But I haven't any doubt about it. I know I ought to listen to the voice.' "'The voice?' "'Yes, the voice of God which spoke to me through you today. You remember you asked me here in this room if I had thought of being a missionary, and I replied I had never given it a thought. But now it all seems very clear. I have heard the voice of God.' Dr. Ward looked at his son with a feeling of awe. Dick, with a sudden yearning to know more of his son's inner life. Surely this is not the first time you have heard that voice. It must have sounded in your heart over there. Yes, Dad, we never talked of it much, but we did feel it. An English officer over a company assigned to work with ours was a poet. He wrote out his experiences while in Flanders before he joined us. I learned the voices, and they became a part of what I also felt. This is how they ran, as printed in the London Spectator and Dick recited softly, as if alone. We had forgotten you, O Christ, or very nearly. You did not seem to touch us very dearly. Of course we thought about you now and then, especially in any time of trouble. We knew that you were good in time of trouble, but we are very ordinary men. And all the while, in street or lane or byway, you walked among us, and we did not see. Your feet were bleeding as you walked our pavements. How did we miss your footprints on our pavements? Can there be other folks as blind as we? Now we remember over here in Flanders. It isn't strange to think of you in Flanders. This hideous warfare seems to make things clear. We never thought about you much in England. We have no doubts. We know that you are here. You helped us pass the jests along the trenches. Wearing cold blood, we waited in the trenches. You touched its ripe baldry and made it fine. You stood beside us in our pain and weakness. We're glad to think you understood our weakness. Somehow it seems to help us not to whine. We think about you kneeling in the garden. Oh, God, the agony of that dread garden! We know you prayed for us upon the cross. If anything could make us glad to bear it, t'would be the knowledge that you will to bear it, pain death, the uttermost of human loss. Though we forgot you, you will not forget us. We feel so sure that you will not forget us. But stay with us until this dream is past, and so we ask for courage, strength, and pardon. Especially, I think, we ask for pardon, and that you'll stand beside us to the last. Dick said it all so simply— so simply that it sounded more like a personal confession than a recitation, and his father understood. After a moment of silence, Dr. Ward said gently, "'Can you tell me anything more about your experience? I mean, your decision to go into all the world?' "'Only this,' said Dick, speaking with a cheerful directness that was entirely free of cant or morbid exaltation over a new and untried emotion. "'I feel as if I could do some good work over there in Mesopotamia or Palestine.' You know we were ordered into Palestine eight months before the war closed for the hospital and relief work, and some things I saw and learned there. He paused, in reminiscence of some things he had experienced, things not well to recite, and Dr. Ward understood his reticence. But the little that he had said roused a great interest in Dr. Ward to know more, for this was a new Dick, who had opened the door a little way into his inner life, hitherto concealed, as yet not fully comprehended even by himself. "'Tell me what you saw in Palestine to make you think of that as—' Dick answered quickly, interrupting, not at all like him, but with an earnest, impressive interest that swept over his face like a wave of intense recollection. 
One day outside the Jaffa Gate at Jerusalem, a company of refugees came up just as we were going out to our day's work. These people were of all ages, most of them Armenians, who had walked all the way from Damascus, because they had heard of the American relief at Jerusalem. As they came straggling up, I noticed one of the mothers. She couldn't have been more than eighteen years old. And she was carrying a dirty bundle of what I thought was rags wrapped about some fragments of fruit. But just as I was passing her, she fell down right in front of me. If I had taken more much step, my foot would have hit her body. We were all used to such sights, but I tell you, Dad, there was something so cruel about it all that I never got used to it. I stooped down and saw the girl had fainted for food. The boys pulled up, and I naturally held out a piece of bread. The girl came to, opened her eyes, snatched the bread, and then opened the bundle of dirty rags. Dad, there was a baby there, and the mother pressed the bread up against the child's mouth. I saw in the fellow's stall, in a minute, that it was dead. But that wasn't the worst. There was a spear of dry grass sticking out of one corner of the baby's mouth. Amy's so sick, I had to go out of the circle around that mother and her dead baby and sit down. Dad, I've seen some awful things on the battlefield that I can never talk about, but this beat all of them. And I wouldn't mention it, only it comes to me now as it didn't then, that those people over in the country where Christ used to walk and heal the sick and feed the hungry would be a good place for me to work. I believe I could do something over there to help restore the land to the people and give them the bread of life they need so much. And that isn't all, said Dick, after a moment. I got up from where I had been sitting and came back to where the fellows were. The woman had been surrounded by some of her people, and they were all crying out for bed, when what does she do but break away from the crowd around her and make a stagger in my direction? I never felt so done up in my life, Dad. She could hardly drag her feet over the ground, but she came up holding out that dead baby. They tried to take it away, but she wouldn't let go. And she came right up to me and dropped it, rags and all, right in front of me, and said, "'America! America!' "'Think of that, Dad. I made inquiry, or someone did, and learned this girl had been in a missionary school and began to learn English. And then in the massacre her husband, one of the teachers, had been shot, and their house burned and herself tortured to make her reveal the hiding place of money. And she died the next day in the hospital where she was taken that morning. "'It didn't mean to me then at all what it means now.' But I can see her right this minute falling down in the dirt over that bundle of legs, falling apart over her baby, and crying out, America, America! Why, Dad, I believe I would be a coward or something worse if I didn't volunteer as you said this morning we ought to do and bring America to these poor creatures. It looks like a big enough drug for a grown-up man. And Dick, to relieve his unusual feeling, got up to walk around, Dr. Ward eyeing him with growing wonder and interest. But when he finally came back and sat down, neither said a word for several minutes. Then Dick said, as if he had just thought of it, "'I think some of the others were coming round to see you tonight if it isn't too late. You know you used to keep Sunday nights for the open door, and we hadn't forgotten, only I wanted to see you before the others came.' "'The others?' "'Yes. There's Bert and Nelson and Connie Clayton and George Ryder and Holmes and Underwood and Blake and one or two more. We had been talking it all over this afternoon, but waited until you would have time to see it tonight. And that must be them now.' End of chapter 2 Recording by Adelaide Pinerales.